1: It's the last chance to get an incredible 50% off an annual subscription to New Scientist.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome deal. You can get access to everything on newscientist.com for under £50 or $50 in the US. Go to newscientist.com slash pod50 to get this bargain. It really is your last chance.
1: Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper.
0: And I'm Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show.
1: This week we've got some exoplanets in the fabled habitable zone. Ooh. Uh, we're testing we're testing a miracle berry that makes sour things taste sweet. And we have a chimp named after John Bonham, the Led Zeppelin drummer.
0: Well, how can you top that? Amazing. Yeah. We also have a story on how Facebook are developing an AI to read your mind.
1: Yeah, that's not at all dystopian or worrying, is it? No, Um, not at all. (laughs) Matt Sparks is on the pod this week to tell us about that. And we're also joined by reporter Alex Wilkins. Uh, Welcome back, both of you. Hello. Thank you.
0: Before we start though, we've been talking about New Scientist Live over the last few weeks and now is the last chance to get the early bird discount for both in-person and online tickets.
1: Yeah, it's the world's greatest science and technology show. Uh, we always say that, but it is. Uh, it's in London from October the 7th to the 9th and the early bird offer closes Sunday the 11th of September. Find out more and book your tickets at newscientist.com live. Now, in Europe at the moment, we're really all thinking about the energy crisis and worrying about that. But this week, we wanted to start with a report from South America on the Amazon rainforest. And the report's been put together by indigenous leaders from the nine countries and territories that encompass the Amazon. And basically, it says that the rainforest has already passed this tipping point that will flip it into a savannah-like state.
0: It's just such terrible news, isn't it? So to be clear, this is talking about the southern Amazon rainforest, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Um well that that makes up a third of the entire region and the report finds now that 20% of the Amazon has been has been cleared completely and another 6% is um what they call highly degraded.
0: Right. So as we've reported on previous podcasts, the tipping point to go from forest to savanna is thought to be somewhere in that region of 20 to
1: 25%. Yeah, so if you combine The total loss and degradation of forest, if you get between 20 and 25 of that, then you're thought to go to this tipping point. So the report means we've already gone past that. And, you know, you'll remember that the problem is that the rainforest is so vast, it generates its whole own climate, its own rain. It becomes self-sustaining. But when it's too patchy, too much is destroyed or degraded, it can't hold enough moisture and generate that rainfall it needs to sort of self-perpetuate. And this latest report is from the Amazon Geo Socio Environmental Information Network. And I'll put a link to them in the show notes. So basically, uh, one of the authors says, We are at the point of no return.
0: It's just um, really alarming, isn't it? Yeah. As well as being yeah. such an important carbon sink, it's one of the most amazing places on Earth for yeah. biodiversity. And so. I guess one of the things with tipping points is often these sort of predictions can seem theoretical, and maybe it's hard to know whether they'll really come to pass. But I saw in the report that in the past 20 years, rainfall in parts of the Bolivian Amazon has already reduced by 17%. And there are areas of dense rainforest that are becoming savannah. So this does seem to be evidence that that transformation is happening.
1: Yeah, one of the authors said that you know he's been modeling this for thirty years, but now this is no longer models. It's actually happening.
0: that's really tragic. I mm. mean, I guess there's a sort of glimmer of good news in the report uh, that thirty three percent of the Amazon remains pristine, which which might actually have been more than I was expecting yeah and and forty one percent of areas have low degradation that could be restored or restore themselves. so there's something there, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, we haven't totally destroyed the world's greatest biological resource. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, so there is still a chance. Um, and especially that 6% that they found to be degraded, that needs human support to restore itself. So that would be the absolute priority to really put money in and and, and, and really protect and, and let that restore. Um, so that 6% covers 54 million hectares, which is a lot. But the EU has 159 million hectares of forest. So, I don't know, when you put it like that, it feels like an area that could that can be saved.
0: Mm, and can it be done? Do you think it's likely?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a bad time in Brazil. It has been for years with Bolsonaro and these elections. And we know that how bad things are over there because we saw you know, the tragic murder of uh, journalist Dom Phillips and the indigenous expert Bruno Pereira so it's very difficult and i asked um, carlos nobre about this so he's an earth systems scientist at the university of sao paulo in brazil and it was him who first suggested that the amazon could have this flip it could flip to a savanna like state if you if there's too much deforestation and he told me about an organization called the science panel for the amazon uh, and he said they've got two key messages there's first a large scale forest restoration project they call the ark of restoration which sounds like a Doctor Who episode, actually. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is a scaling up of uh, the standing forest bioeconomy. Uh, that's basically monetizing intact ecosystems, and they've got a range of different ways to do that. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and I think it's something we should look into for a future episode. And, of course, both those projects need large investments, and Carlos said the investment world if anyone's listening from the investment world they should give priority to investments to protect the amazon right now
0: so our life form of the week this week is a chimp so that's a very familiar animal for yeah. anyone who knows any animals uh, but this one's doing something quite unusual
1: yeah uh, let's listen to this <laughs> <laughs> now you might have been distracted by the pant hoot that mm. came after, but listen again and listen to that drumming if you can at the beginning. Wasn't that cool?
0: Yeah, yeah. I can almost see a chimp drumming. The rhythm is it's really <laughs> on quite a good. drum kit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now our hands on bongos.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Well, actually, what they're doing is it's on the buttresses of tree roots. They're like they're leaping on that and using their their feet or their arms to drum on the on these huge buttresses of tree roots. But what's cool about this research, um, and this has been led by Catherine Hobater at the University of St. Andrews, is they found that the chimps have got signature styles of drumming, so you can pick out who is who across long distances in the forest.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Um, It makes me think of drumming, it's thought to have been one of the earliest forms of telecommunication in humans, right? We use drumming to send messages through the forest.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I wondered if maybe humans had... And inspired by chip, hearing chimps do it in the first
0: place
1: mm. yeah so the chimps are drumming on the tree roots making this booming sound and they have all these different styles like you know some are some are jazz some are rock style and yeah and they call they call one one chimp john bonham after the led zeppelin legend
0: that's nice i, I hope they all got kind of cool names that reflect their drumming style yeah. um
1: yeah.
0: so what are they sort of saying is there any information in this drumming
1: yeah I don't know about that I, I mean I guess the the minimum amount of information is that it announces their name you know a signature identity you know John Bonham would be able to say i'm I'm here guys or or I'm over here at the moment, so you know broadcast their name across the forest
0: yeah I mean I guess I send many whatsapp messages to that effect <laughs> so yeah. it's quite useful. It's so cool. Uh, can we hear any more?
1: yeah, Ollie, let's have some more please <laughs> Okay, let's take a quick break. There's only a week to go until the largest festival of ideas and music, How the Light Gets In, takes place in London. That takes place on Saturday the 17th to Sunday the 18th of September in the grounds of Kenwood House in Hampstead Heath. Find out more and book your tickets at howthelightgetsin.org. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: We're going to talk about mind reading now. Uh, Matt, you've been reporting a story about how Facebook has developed a mind reading AI. Can you guess what I'm going to ask you first?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I can. And So if you (laughs) are going to ask whether it can really read your mind, the answer is no at the moment. But it, it can, to a certain extent, a, a limited extent, work out what you're hearing.
0: Okay, that's that's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, I, I guess we should just make clear that we're talking about an AI that's been made by Meta. It's just we we still sort of tend to think of Meta as being Facebook because it's the parent company of Facebook, and it's all a bit confusing.
2: Yeah, that's right. They've Meta is the is the new uh, umbrella, or not so new anymore, umbrella company for Facebook because they're branching out into kind of 3D virtual worlds and metaverses and that sort of thing. And this is this research is done by the scientific arm of Meta, which, um, you know, they say there's no commercial drive behind it. It's, it's just research for research's sake, which is great. And what they've done is they've they've made an AI which can interpret your brainwaves and figure out which words you were hearing when they were re- recorded. So they're taking a lot of data sets of audio and then the brainwaves that people sort of created when they were listening to that audio and they fed it all into an AI and the AI's kind of learned to spot patterns between the two and then they saved a little bit of that data for testing so it's stuff that the AI had never seen before and uh, you know fed these brainwaves into the AI and to a certain extent it can figure out which words you're hearing but there is you know it's it's a long way from reliable so there was a vocabulary of 793 words in that sort of testing data, and uh, for every potential word, the AI generated a list of 10 words that it hmm. could be, and 73% of the time, that list included the correct word. So there's yeah.
1: a, you know, there's a lot of layers of. It's, caveat like, or, there. it's like Wordle, but with audio. Yeah, yeah, really Complicated. Yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah, that sounds like quite a puzzle if you're getting this list of. 10 options for every word and then 73% of the time you know that the right word is in there. Um, Is this useful?
2: No, I mean, (laughs) uh, that level of reliability, it wouldn't be useful anyway. But if you you think about the actual ability, there isn't really an application for it. I mean, if you want to hear what someone was hearing, you record what they were hearing. So uh, it's kind of a stepping stone. You know, it's an interesting piece of research, but it's not really useful at the moment.
0: Mm, So what's the point? Where do you think they're sort of hoping to go with this?
2: Well, I I think that this is a step towards working out, you know, interpreting your thoughts. There's been lots of research where you would record brainwaves of people listening to a song, and then the AI could tell which one of six songs it was, and that sort of really simple stuff. So this is a step further. But the... The idea of sort of interpreting your thoughts is a hugely more complicated problem than even yeah. even this
1: research. You can imagine Facebook uh, if they're thinking about the the metaverse and someone who's immersed in it, there might be an application there down the line. Absolutely, yeah.
2: I think um, one thing they're saying that the research could be useful for is is locked in patients, patients who who can't communicate verbally or even you know, physically to use a keyboard or anything. And, uh, you know, something like this could be hugely useful for them. But you can also cynically imagine that it would be really useful to plug into a VR headset and and give to Facebook yeah. users as well.
3: Yeah. well.
0: Silicon Valley are really keen on the idea, aren't they, that you could sort of talk to your device, think up a text message without having to do any sort of physical typing or input. So I guess I could see that this could build towards that. But I suppose the thing I'd be most interested in is just because even if they can crack this and work out what you're hearing, is that going to tell you any useful information for what you're thinking? Because that might be a completely different part of the brain with a, a completely different signature. I, I guess we'll find out.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of unknowns. Um, I mean, this research is all working on EEG and MEG, which are, you know, non-invasive scans of the brain. One researcher told me that that's like trying to stream an HD movie over an old analog telephone modem. You know, the, <laughs> the bandwidth of thoughts and emotions is is just enormous, and you can't necessarily pull it out this way. So maybe we need brain implants. And, um, you know, if I, if I was a patient who was unable to communicate, and someone said, if you have this implant, you'll be able to, great. But if uh, it's just an easier way of updating my Facebook
1: feed, no. OK, it's time for a food interlude now and we're joined by assistant news editor Sam Wong. Sam, I saw on, your, on the blurb it says your official title is Chief Gourmand of New Scientist. Yes, that's right. Oh, self-appointed title, <laughs> is that? Um, and we've also ro- roped in reporter Carissa Wong to help taste what we're going to do today. So, um, Sam, what are we doing first? So, first off, I've got
4: some fermented hot sauce, uh, which I've made by fermenting some red chillies. <laughs>
1: Is this how you made the kimchi? Do you have to sort of get bacteria off your hands and ferment it, or is there just stuff already there?
4: Yeah, so the, the general idea is the same. Basically, you're taking vegetables, you're um, mixing them with salt. The salt uh, draws out some water and, uh, and then you kind of leave it for a while. And then the salt also encourages the growth of microbes that produce acid. And the salt and the acid together will inhibit the growth of microbes that cause spoilage, so the food will keep for longer. But some other microbes that can tolerate high acid and salt will flourish and they produce all these kinds of flavour molecules. They metabolise the sugar that's in the vegetables, produce a range of molecules that we perceive as delicious. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, the principle is as much the same as, as with kimchi. Okay. Uh, but where do the bacteria come from? Um, some of them may be on your hands, some of them may be in the vegetables. Okay. Uh, we don't really know. Let's try it. Yeah, so let's try yes, I've got some tortilla bacteria. chips <laughs> and uh, there you go. These, I've just used um, chilies from the supermarket, which Mm. sometimes they turn out to be not very hot, but my Mm. recent experience Mm, is that... Yeah, I don't know if mm. I've dipped too much there, but... Uh, Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Recently I found that the supermarket chilies have actually been quite spicy, Mm -hmm. and I don't know whether that's because... I've, I've heard that chilies, if you don't water them as much, they get hotter, so I don't know whether the dry weather means that chilies in general that you buy from the shop are also yeah. hotter, but um, but yeah, this this sauce I find quite quite it's hot. There's a sweetness I don't know what you to it as well, though. Yeah, there's definitely some sweetness there. Um, but
1: you haven't added sugar, have you? I have added a bit of sugar. <laughs> <yet>. oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I've
4: added a, a little. So I've left uh, the uh, chilies fermenting for about two weeks. One to two weeks is normally a, a good amount of time. And then after that, I've kind of blended them up and added a bit of sugar and a bit of uh, vinegar for some extra acidity. But yeah, they, it, the bacteria themselves have already made it uh, somewhat acidic.
1: Oh, it's really, really tasty. Is there, you know, the the sort of stories go around about the benefits of fermented food? What's the latest thinking on that? Well, um, so I'm it, uh, keep eating while you tell
4: us. Yes. Yeah. Sorry,
0: I'm <laughs> just eating it. All. No. No. Go.
4: Um, So, yeah, a lot of the the bacteria that are present in fermented foods are also um, bacteria that are found uh, in a healthy gut microbiome. And there have been uh, a few studies that have found that um, people who eat fermented foods are more likely to to live longer and to have a healthy gut microbiome. So, um, you know, we have to be careful about those kinds of diet observational studies, Mm. so we can't necessarily say that it will make you live longer or anything, but um, the consensus seems to be that, you know, it's a healthy thing to include in your diet.
1: Well, it's delicious for its own sake anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to make your own. And what's next on the menu? Okay, so the next
4: thing is a bit more unusual. It's uh, a berry which are called miracle berries, and they make sour things taste sweet.
1: Okay, and you've got what looked like a blister pack of pills there (laughs) rather than a sort of bunch of berries.
4: Yeah so these berries are grown in West Africa and they um, they don't travel well and they're not grown on a very large scale mm. and you can't actually buy the fresh berries in the UK but you can buy these sort of freeze dried versions of the berries. So okay. what you have to do is to put it in your mouth try and break it up a bit with your teeth but then just kind of leave it on your tongue so that the, mm. the stuff the, dissolves onto your tongue and just kind of leave that for a, a few seconds. Okay. So do that now. So the, um, the chemical that um, causes this effect is called um, miraculin, and it was identified in 1968, and in 2011 a team in Japan figured out how it works. It's basically a protein that's at neutral pH, it's an antagonist to the sweet receptors, so it, it, it doesn't taste sweet itself, it kind of blocks the taste of sweetness. But in the presence of an acid, the protein miraculin changes shape, and then it activates the receptors. Mm. So you'll, we'll taste some sour things soon, and uh, once that's kind of dissolved on your tongue, and then you should find that they taste different to usual. Let's find out. Just give it some time to, you know. I've eaten mine. You've eaten it?
1: Okay. It kind of
3: Mine's, yeah, go dissolved
1: on. it all. Okay, cool. Shall I eat a bit, bit of lemon now? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, that does taste weirdly sweet. Yeah, it's more it? like
0: lemonade. Wow. Mm.
1: So we're just. Literally cut a lemon in half, and we're sucking a lemon. <laughs> but it's really we're not pulling, sucking lemon lemon faces at all.
0: No, it's like that's you amazing, orange, actually,
1: isn't it? Mm. Wow.
0: Mm. So
4: it's activating your sweet receptors, and um, and that's also diminishing the, your perception of sour because you know that's why adding sugar t- to things makes things taste less sour because the, the sweetness kind of counteracts the sourness. Mm. Um, but yeah, it'll taste like lemonade. That's um, amazing, mm-hmm. isn't it? So there's a lot of interest in this. Obviously, um, you know, sugar is bad for us. So there's lots of interest in trying to come up with ways of creating sweet tastes without sugar. And, you know, lots of the artificial sweeteners, they either don't work that well or or some of them have some kind of, you know, health effects of their own. So scientists are studying this miraculin protein, trying to work out how we can use it. But it hasn't been produced on a big scale. Some uh, researchers in Japan are trying to genetically modify other fruits like tomatoes to produce the miraculin there's also uh, researchers in uh, in Africa who are trying to just find out better ways of growing the crop and scaling up production. Mm. And there's a company from Spain that uh, uh, is sort of investing in trying to um, increase the sustainable production of this crop. So it, it may become more widely available in the future, but we're, we're still kind of... Um, at the moment, you can only buy these uh, these tablets, which are actually quite expensive. So, uh, if yeah. you want to try it, how much You can order them online. They're, they cost like eighteen pounds for a pack of ten. Right. Um, so, you know, if you want to splash out, it's quite a fun thing to try. Yeah. But it's uh, not going to be solving the um, you know our, our sugar addiction problem anytime soon.
0: I'm really interested in like why the berries evolved to do this. Like, mm. are there animals that eat it and then go and eat some like?
4: sour fruit that's good for them or something. a great question um, I don't know what what eats the fruit in the wild whether this is an evolved thing or whether it's just a coincidence mm. um, but apparently people in in West Africa places like Ghana where it's grown they've been enjoying this um, this fruit for a long time and they use it to you know give it to children to make them eat something healthy that they don't like and mm. all this kind of stuff
0: I'm jealous that chilli sauce sounds amazing. I'll have to give it a go. Um, Okay, next this week, we are going 100 light years away. Why is that, Alex?
3: The reason we're looking so far away is because we've found a couple of exoplanets in what's called the habitable zone. This is a region that surrounds a star that astronomers think planets could maybe retain liquid water and atmosphere and support life. Now, these aren't the first exoplanets we've found that could potentially support life. You'll remember the TRAPPIST system got loads of press coverage a few years ago, and, and loads of scientists were really excited about it, uh, that has three planets in the habitable zone out of a total seven. But now we've found more of them around another star, and that they're also orbiting a red dwarf star called Speculus 2. Uh, it's actually the first star that this new exoplanet-observing uh, mission has, has basically found. Speculus, too, that's a great
1: name, and Just so makes 100... me think
0: of biscuits every time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> why, why, what? Why speculus is
0: a biscuit, it's, is it? It's a very popular European biscuit. <laughs> oh, god,
1: oh, right, you've got to try the chili, and I've got to try these speculus biscuits. <laughs> it's a deal. <laughs> um, so they're 100 light years away. Does that mean more? what do we know about them?
3: So Currently we know very little, Uh, all we know is their radius which is about 30 to 40% bigger than Earth within the sort of error bars that the scientists have found and how long they take to orbit the star which is about 8 days for the further out one. But these two bits of information can actually tell us quite a bit. We've got other data on how different exoplanets' radiuses relate to their mass and using this sort of relationship we can estimate the mass of these two planets. And then that leads to whether they might have an atmosphere or even liquid water. So we don't really know anything at this stage. But astronomers think that the second further out planet, which is called Speculus 2c, could be the second most potentially habitable planet discovered so far after TRAPPIST-1e, which is the one that scientists have really got their eye on.
0: Now, that just sounds so exciting. Am I, do I have permission to just be really excited about this or are there caveats? Uh,
3: you can have a little bit of excitement, but there's quite, there's <laughs> <Mission> co- <granted. laughs> there's quite a few reasons um, to sort of tamper that a bit. Yeah. So when it comes to hosting life, you really want a planet that's rotating a bit like Earth or, or the only sample we have is, is Earth because that's the only place that we know host life. This planet, on the other hand, is something called tidally locked to its star. So it doesn't rotate. It has one side permanently facing the star and another side permanently facing away. So this sort of permanent day and night. And it's also very close to the star. Because the red dwarf is a lot cooler than the sun, these planets can orbit a lot closer, which means they might support life at this sort of closer distance. But it also means that they could get vastly more radiation than than we get from the sun which which could be lethal for any sort of life we really don't mm-hmm. know much about whether planets this closely to their star can ever support life so that's something that we're going to want to be trying to find out in future i do think though that the
1: the tidally locked thing you know you'd get this gradient between the light side and the dark and you'd get a heat and cold gradient and and gradients are really useful for generating conditions we we know life likes so i think it's not a a deal breaker
0: i also think um i've thought about this quite a lot before we're so used to having to think about tides and changing light and dark every day because it's a huge feature of this planet but it doesn't mean that life has to have that kind of back and forth that happens all the time be so interesting to think what it would be like without it
1: yeah um so this is not a james webb space telescope discovery is it do you think that we'll be able to get a chance to look at it through the james webb so,
3: the the scientists that found these planets are, are really hopeful that we will. James Webb has already proved that it's really good at observing exoplanets. We, we've already had evidence, I think last week, where it managed to clearly detect the atmosphere of one exoplanet and find carbon dioxide. It's really a game changer when it comes to observing exoplanets. But the, the team that discovered these two planets haven't applied for time on the James Webb. The scientists that I spoke to said that they almost certainly will. But they've got a huge queue ahead of them. Like There are so many astrophysical objects that scientists want to observe, like the TRAPPIST-1 system, for instance. So they've got quite a few people ahead in the queue, really, before they get a chance. It's all up to NASA in the end, whether they think that these planets are deserving of time with the telescope.
0: And, uh, of course, it's been so exciting seeing everything that's coming through from the James Webb Telescope. We're sort of seeing it as this hugely powerful piece of equipment, but presumably it is limited in some of its talents. Would would it really be able to give us a good picture?
3: So hopefully, but one expert that I spoke to said that it would actually be quite a difficult task. The team behind the discovery calculated in their paper that it would take around 90 transits or, or 90 times of the planet passing in front of the star to get data good enough to be able to characterize the atmosphere. Now that would take quite a long time compared to some of the other objects that james webb is observing mm. so they're really going to have to present the case to the nasa team that look we need to find out what this is
0: so if they are successful and they do get to have that sort of long chunk of time to study the planet and then it turns out to be you know not habitable or we don't see any further signs of interest uh, will that all have been for nothing
3: i mean obviously people are going to be disappointed if if we don't find life because that's like the the big thing everyone wants to find but this is also going to be really useful for just characterising which planets can maybe sustain life and which can't and, and what this habitable zone really means. We've still got so little data about exoplanets as a whole and we don't know what a habitable zone is at all apart from the Earth. We've only got a sample size of one really, which is ourselves. <laughs> so whatever the data that comes back, it's going to be helpful and it's going to help us fine-tune our models for spotting hopefully potentially habitable exoplanets in the future and i have to say um, in this whole segment on
1: exoplanets you probably heard uh, the astronomer frank drake died last week Uh, he's the legendary astronomer who's famous for many things but the drake equation especially which is about estimating the number of intelligent civilizations in the galaxy so in this segment we should say goodbye to frank drake That's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Alex Wilkins and Matt Sparks. And thanks to you for listening. Remember uh, that link for newscientist.com slash pod50 is your last chance to get that bargain 50% offer subscription to New Scientist.
0: And of course, newscientist.com slash live for the last early bird tickets to New Scientist Live. That's it. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Sorry. Bye.
3: Bye. This podcast is produced by
4: OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.